Today, we are going to return to the book of Ephesians. Woo! Exploring Ephesians. We've been going through this. You understand it's been part of three different calendar years. 15, 16, and 17, we've been going through Ephesians. And it sounds you're like, three years. I counted 32 sermons so far. So not 112 or anything. 32. By the time we're done, we're going to have done about 42 sermons, so not even a year of preaching um, because we've taken these, these long breaks. So um, today we're going to start in the final, we're, we're pushing to the ascent. What's that called when you're climbing a mountain? The final ascent, right? We're on the final ascent up to the peak of, uh, of our exploration of the book of Ephesians. It's been awesome, and I've got to admit, I'm kind of sad that we're getting to the end of it um, because this has been, this letter is is, in my opinion, the best in all the Bible. Because Paul is writing, he's not trying to fix problems. He's just saying, here's what it is to be a Christian, and here's what it looks like to grow as a Christian. And so he's just teaching us. And somebody said, when I mentioned to him on Wednesday night that uh, we're going to get back to Ephesians and we're in a final push, they said, um, why don't we just start back over in verse 1, chapter 1. And I said, you know what? We could do it. Because I guarantee you, you don't remember what we talked about. I don't remember. And we could probably go through the same thing, just go through Ephesians the rest of our lives, and it would be an incredible blessing to us. But we're not going to do that, okay? So today we're going to pick up with where we left off last fall, all right? And we're going to get to a minute. Grab your Bibles. Open your Bibles to chapter 5 of Ephesians. We're going to look at verses 18 to 20 today. But because we've had this long break since last fall, I want to give you a really brief reminder of of the breakdown that Paul has in this book, and basically into into three sections. The first section was chapters 1 through 3, and we took a lot of time on 1 through 3, but because in chapters 1 through 3, Paul is just using all the... Every bit of language he can use to try to experience or express to us what it is to be in Christ, what it really means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, what it means to have new life in Jesus, and and just so we don't just overlook it and say, oh yeah, this is it's just religion. It's not. It's new, incredible, empowered living. And so he talks about that in chapter one through three. Then in chapter four. Paul shifts gears, and he does this in most of his epistles when you read them. He always talks about theoretical stuff first, then he shifts gears very clearly, and he goes into practical application. And that's what he did here. In chapter 4, he goes into very practical explanation about how the Christian life is to be lived. And he gave all these practical examples of what a life of continual spiritual transformation, because that's what he's looking for that if we are transformed from the inside out to, into, the, into, into being like Jesus, then we as a group of people will be loving towards one another, we will function in unity, and that loving unity will be a display for all the world. He says, including the angels, in chapter 3, we'll see it and go, God is awesome. Because no one could have fixed this mess in the world. But when he sees a church functioning the way the church is supposed to function, it literally is designed to be a display to, to the world and to, it says, all the heavenly host about the glory and the goodness of God. So he talks about in chapter 4, what's that look like? How do we become more like Jesus? How do we grow in, in Christ's likeness? And he basically uses a format. He says you put off old stuff and you put on new stuff. And he talks about how that's not just self-help, but it's spirit-empowered. Spirit and he th- says things like this. You put off lying 
and you put on speech that blesses, and you put off anger, and you put on self-control, and you put off um, dishonest activities, and you put on living in personal responsibility. You put off bitterness and wrath, and you put on forgiveness. In all that chapter 4, Paul explains how the process of transformation works and what it looks like. But then we came to chapter 5. And in chapter 5, Paul kind of ramps it up a little bit, and he's going to still be talking, 4 and 5 are together, about a life of transformation, but he gives us a little fuller picture of what we're supposed to be aiming at in our development in Christ-likeness. And he says basically this. He says, um, you are supposed to be coming like God. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. It's exactly what he says to you. Kind of, kind of a freaky, scary verse. Chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Therefore, be imitators of Pastor Mark. Oh, it's not what it says? Be imitators of Billy Graham. No, he says, be imitators of God. In other words, he's saying, we are in the process of Christian transformation where we are putting off old sinful ways and putting on new positive ways. And what we are doing in that process is we are developing to be looking like God, to imitate or to act like God himself acts in this world. We're not becoming God, but he's saying as God indwelt people, we literally become like God. We should be transformed so we think and act and feel the way God does. And he tries to explain to us, he says, and the way you know how God acts is that you look at Jesus. Scripture says that when you've Jesus, about Jesus, when you've seen Jesus, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So Jesus is the revelation of God in a way, in this world, in a way that we can understand, but according to this, in a way that we can imitate. So that's what we come to midway through chapter 5. We've kind of covered the whole book. See, we could have done it instead of 30 sermons. We could have done it in five minutes. We come to that midway through chapter 5. What's happening here, you have to understand it's in context, Paul is giving another example of what it looks like to grow in Christ-likeness, to put off old way of living and thinking and put on a new and understand a much better way of living and thinking, and therefore, in the process, reveal Jesus in and through us. He's going to say there's an old way and there's a new way, and the new way, he always is saying, is the better way. Say this with me. Say, better way. Better way. We don't believe that a lot of times. I hear people say, oh, if I serve Jesus, I've got to give so much up. You know what you give up? You give up pain. You give up dysfunction. You give up a lack of joy, a lack of, of abiding peace. And what you get is a good life in Christ. The Bible calls it an abundant life. That's what you get. And so he's trying to say, put off this old stuff. And a lot of times that old stuff really clings to us. And we go, but I couldn't live without this. He says, put this off. He's saying, trust me, because the new way I'm going to give you is infinitely better. So you're ready to, with that background, jump into what Paul was saying. Where are we going to make an exchange here? Old for new. That's where we're at. Chapter 5, starting in verse 18. Hang on, Wisconsinites. Hang on, Germans. Ready? And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit, singing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Therefore... 
mm, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Let's keep this in context. Let's remember, Paul is teaching here about Christian growth and maturity and some of the exchanges we make in the process. That we exchange something common and something that's often harmful and something that causes problems for something that is better and life-giving and something that more clearly reflects the nature of Jesus in us. And in this situation, what Paul is doing is he juxtaposes or compares and contrasts two ways of living. Either being filled with wine, the real word means there, being filled with wine, or being filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is what Paul's really saying to us. Saying, you have to put off one in order to put on the other. He is juxtaposing a life of of really excessive drinking is what he's talking about here, with a life of being filled with the Spirit. Paul is saying something here that I kind of imagine the people of Ephesus didn't like very much. Because I think this is one of the areas that really clings on tightly. And I think this is something that Paul says to us today, that people in southeast Wisconsin living near Milwaukee, you know, we have a, we have a beer named after our city. You know, old Milwaukee, they still make that. Okay, old, my, you all know that. <laughs> old Milwaukee, the king of beers, right? That's when I was a kid growing up, that was the commercials. Um, you know, we have beer named after our city. And so I think this message that he's going to talk about, this transition, might not be real popular today, but I want to try to explain what I, what I believe he's saying. I think he's saying that maturity in Christ's likeness affects one's life in many ways, and it will affect your alcohol consumption. That the spirit-filled life that God has available for all of his followers won't be fully realized if a person chooses to live a life of excessive alcohol use. And you could also put on there any other drugs or whatever. That the way I want to deal with this today, though, look at what Paul is teaching, is I want to use an example that I know a lot about to talk about this. Me. Okay? I'm going to use me as an example. An example not of a super Christian, because if you know me at all, you know I don't think I am, I don't act like I am, and everybody around me knows that I'm not. But an example of someone who has made an exchange in my life of drinking, and I've actually chose to not drink at all, um, for a life of a pursuit of being spirit-filled of a spirit-filled life. And I'm not talking about an experience of being spirit-filled. I'm talking a lifetime of being spirit-filled. As a matter of fact, next week, and actually the week after, we're going to deal with the spirit-filled life in the whole sermon. So I'm going to give you four factors, and I get your pencil and paper out because you're going to like some of these, that led me to the conclusion that I should stop drinking. And all I'm going to ask to do today, because this is southeast Wisconsin, is ask you to consider if these factors are valid. And if so, ask yourself, what does that mean to you? I'm not telling you what to do today. I'm telling you four factors in my life, and I'm going to ask you to consider them. And then I'm simply going to ask you to be honest with yourself and say, what does that mean to me? So you ready for factor number one? Factor number one is this. I was a stupid drunk. 
underline the word stupid. That's why I'm talking about it. I was a stupid drunk. I used to drink a lot. Drank beer every day of my life. Would binge drink at parties with friends, hanging out. You know, I, I drank like pretty much everybody else in southeast Wisconsin. Um, and, and here's the truth. I did a lot of stupid things when I was drinking. Um, driving under the influence. I remember a time driving with a person, I want to say his name, who for years before I was here attended this church. We were best friends in high school. And um, went to Kewaskum. And we were, I mean, stumbling drunk. Drinking bottles of, of booze. I mean, just drunker than can be. I'm in a car behind him. I was too drunk to drive at all. He was too drunk to drive. The guy with me who was driving was too drunk. And all I can remember is I'm in a drunken stupor looking and saying, how come his taillights turned upside down? And I couldn't figure out why. It was because he drove off the road, flipped his car, and smashed it into a tree. And me and my other drunken friends dragged him out of there. And somehow, by the grace of God, he lived. But that was a normal part of my life, being stupid and driving drunk. Um, how about being drunk and doing things like fighting with your friends? I remember one time at the Slinger Racetrack. Remember, I grew up around here. Punching my best friend right in the mouth. I don't know why I did it. I was drunk. I remember just punching him right in the mouth. Um, fighting with strangers. Boatonville Picnic. Everybody read the Boatonville Picnic? Some band was playing, and I'm in there, and I'm drinking, and I hit a guy, and he's dancing, and I hit him, and he turns on and he punches me right in the face. And I remember, he didn't, I was so drunk, I just stood there and looked at him. And he went, oh my goodness. I hit this guy as hard as I could, and he didn't fall down. I was just too drunk to feel anything. I was a stupid drunk. Wasting money. You know how much money I spent in bars? A lot. Um, embarrassing behavior. Here's the truth. I still can't dance even when I'm drunk. I can't dance sober and I can't dance drunk. I look pretty pathetic. I can slow dance with my wife. We took dance lessons. Fred Astaire. We've got to go back and do those because I can't dance. I'm really bad at it. I was generally stupid when I was drunk. You know what I'd get when i drink? I got beer muscles. You know what beer muscles are? Beer muscles are where a guy thinks he's a lot tougher than he is when, he drunk, when he's drunk. So you thought you could do anything. You thought you could take on anybody. But here's the deal. I was a, I was a stupid drunk, but I'm going to be honest with you. I wasn't alone. I'm not alone. Most people get stupid when they drink and say, oh, I can handle my liquor. Here's why I say people are stupid when they drink. Because alcohol, this is just the physiology of it all, alcohol is a depressant. People think alcohol is a stimulant. Alcohol is not a stimulant. Look it up in your medical book. Alcohol is a depressant. And what it does, it depresses the highest functioning centers of your brain. Those centers that control things that give you things like this. Self-control, wisdom, understanding, judgment, balance, and the power to assess. Those things are depressed when a person drinks any alcohol at all. At all. In other words... Alcohol depresses everything that makes a person behave at his best and his highest function. You will never function higher when you drink than if you don't drink. Alcohol is a depressant. And that's why when people drink, they make dumb decisions. You know, they spend their rent money on buying shots for the whole bar. Why? 
It's a dumb thing because your, your processing is depressed. Your power to assess, I need this money for rent. Your power to make good judgment calls is suppressed when you drink alcohol. It, it's a drug that suppresses your high-functioning systems of your brain. You engage in activities when you're drinking you otherwise would not have, like smarting off to the big, massive guy in the bar when you're a little pipsqueak. That happens all the time. Why? Because your judgment centers are depressed. You do things you wouldn't done. Or think of this. You, I would, I don't, there's no way probably of finding this number, but I've always thought of this. What percentage of teen pregnancies are tied to alcohol consumption? A young girl and a young man engaging in activities that they know they really shouldn't have, and especially in ways they should not, that would lead to pregnancy, because of inhibited value judgment. Because alcohol depresses your brain. Or how about fighting with your spouse or your kids? How many people get drunk, drink too much, come home, you know, they kick the dog, the kids go flying, and the wife or husband, whichever one, gets in an argument with that person, screaming and yelling over nothing. Why? It happens every day around our country, in our, in our little county. Every day, hundreds and maybe thousands of times. Why? Because alcohol makes people act stupid. And I know it's true, because it's true of me. So, alcohol, I know that it, it is true. And for all of the commercials that try to make people that are drinking look cool, make them look like they're having fun, make them look like you'll be better in a social crowd even look sophisticated, we know the truth. People have a lot of things to regret and apologize for after they drink excessively. Is that true? True. So factor number one makes some sense. I was a stupid drunk. So you can always say, what's your pastor? Well, my pastor was a stupid drunk. Make sure you put in there was. Okay. You know what's really fun with the was part? In this part of the country, everybody drinks. Not everybody, but most people do. I don't. I don't and I, I've chosen not drink at all. I'll explain that. I, I've chosen to just not have... I've had a drink in um, over 30 years. I have had a drink. So in the first 20-some years of my life, drinking, and in the last 30, none. And when I'm in a situation where there's alcohol and it's going to be awkward, I say this. This is the greatest response. I go, oh, man, I've had a drink for 27 years. And you know what they say to you? They go, oh, man, that's cool. I respect that, man. Here's what the deal. If I say, I don't drink, what's wrong with you? But if I say, I've been a drink in 27 years, do you know what they think? They think I was an alcoholic. And they go, oh, man, I respect that. I, re- I respect that in you. you know. So if they think I was an alcoholic, they celebrate me for not drinking. If I just say, I choose not to drink, they're like, what's wrong with you? And so try it next time you're in a setting. And, they're gonna, and everybody's drinking, you're like awkward, and you go, oh, man, I haven't had a drink in 27 years. You know? And uh, now I can honestly say that I haven't had a drink in 27 years or 30 some years. And so, um, but because one of the reasons is factor number one, I was a stupid drunk. Number two, ready for factor number two? It's a little more biblical. Well, that was biblical because God created my brain and it's just true. Number two, and I'm going to say this, write it down, then I'm going to explain it. Love is the highest of Christian virtues. Love is the highest of Christian virtues. Let me explain. See, drinking was just a natural part of my upbringing. I have no idea at what age I started drinking alcohol. I don't ever remember not drinking alcohol. 
It was just part of our life. I always said when, when people came to our house, the chairs for the kids were always Pabst Blue Ribbon boxes. Remember they had those great boxes for their bottles? Maybe they still do that, but they were like really hot. They were really durable, you know, and so we sat on Pabst Blue Ribbon boxes my, my whole life. I don't ever remember not drinking. And as I got older into my early teens, very early teens, I began to drink a lot more. And I wasn't unusual. I was like all of my family and friends. It wasn't like I was some crazy guy. Matter of fact, I was usually kind of wimpy. You know, I was like, I kind of was slow to get into it. My brothers and sisters, brother and sister, they were way more advanced into getting into trouble through drugs and alcohol than I was. Then in my late teens, something happened. I became a Christian. And as I became a Christian, I'm a very logical person. I started reading this book called the Bible. And I realized very clearly from the Bible, it says that getting drunk was wrong. So I stopped getting drunk. Matter of fact, after I became a Christian, I, I think there maybe was a few times. Matter of fact, uh, I do remember witnessing to a guy who ended up getting saved and is still serving the Lord when we were both drunk. We went out bowling. And so um, I'm not sure exactly how that worked, but I barely, I really said I, I shouldn't get drunk anymore. And, but I kept on drinking socially. In fact, and Suzanne always says this. She says, Mark doesn't pay to argue with you because it doesn't matter if you're right or wrong, you always will win. And she says, your brain works different than mine. She said, you'll always win an argument. And this is what I would do. I would argue with any Christian that said that I should stop drinking. And I would prove it to them with their Bible that I could drink in, in moderation. After all, Jesus turned water into wine and all the stuff, and I could, I could prove it. But then I had an experience in my life that changed me and made me me make a decision to not drink at all. One night, um, I was, I, I don't know why I was, but I was at my parents' house and my brother still lived there. My brother's one year, 11 months younger than me. And um, he was a, a major partier. Cool thing is now he doesn't drink and he's the head of men's ministries and somebody's got a church in their city. Um, but, and is, is living a great life. He was heading out on a Friday night to go partying. I had a can of Miller Light, Miller, Miller beer in my hand, not Miller Light, Miller. And I'm drinking a can of Miller, and he's going to go out, and we did not get along at all. Now we're good friends, but we did not get along at all. And I'm drinking a beer, and in a very condemning way, I tell him, listen, idiot, don't be going out and getting drunk tonight because you're going to crash your car. That guy should have been killed in so many car accidents. I don't know how he ever lived. You're going to crash a car. You're going to get killed. You're going to cause problems. You're going to do this. And I'm just telling him, in, in all Christian non-love, um, just condemning him. You know. And I remember him being mad, and he, and he walks down the stairs, because it was a second store, walks down the stairs, kind of like, I won't tell you what he said and what he did, but you, know, you can imagine. He was saluted me and, you know, and walks out of the house. And as I'm standing there, justified in my Christianity... The Holy Spirit, one of the clearest times in my entire life, just speaks to me as clear as one of you talking to me. And he said, you are causing your brother to stumble. And I thought, I'm causing my brother to stumble. And I realize, because I'm reading this book, I've not been saved all that many years, but I'm like, hey, that's from the Bible. So I look and I figure out it's from 1 Corinthians 8. And it's about the, about the Apostle Paul. He's dealing in this section with the fact that in those days back there, when G, Paul's days, people would take an animal to be sacrificed in a temple, and then they would say that that animal was blessed because it was sacrificed to an idol. 
And Paul, he's saying in this section, he knew that idols really meant nothing at all. He goes, they're just wood or metal. He said, so it doesn't really bother me. But he says he realized that some people who were weaker in their faith that were Christians, they were brothers and sisters in Christ, were getting messed up because he was eating meat sacrificed to idols. They're saying they thought he was, that he was validating the fact that eating the meat sacrificed to idols was, was a good thing. And so he makes a statement. And grab your Bibles if you want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. It's one of the sections in your Bible I think you should highlight. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, nine, verses 9 through 13. This is what it says. But take care that this liberty of yours... You know what liberty means? It means you have rights. Is America, what's the, it's the statue of liberty. We say you have rights to do what you want, and we do have rights. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not, remember, talk about this meat that's sacrificed to idols, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols. He's saying, won't you be validating that he thinks it's a good thing to eat meat sacrificed to idols? That somehow there's something good about that. Verse 11. For through your, through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. And the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so, by listen to this. By sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against who? Christ. Can you imagine that? You say, i got a right to do whatever I want to do. And he's saying, by you sinning against your brother because he's weaker than you and what you're doing is actually negatively affecting him, he says you're not just wounding him, you're literally sinning against Christ. Verse 13, this is the text I'm looking at. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Here's the point. Paul was willing to give up his right so that he would not cause another person to stumble. And here's the Christian foundational belief. Love caused him to give up his right. And That night, with my brother, standing above those steps, condemning him, he's walking down the steps, saluting me as I'm condemning him, the Spirit said to me, you are causing your brother to stumble. That me exercising my right to have my can of Miller was a stumbling block to my physical real brother, not just a spiritual brother. At this point, he wasn't a spiritual brother. He was just a biological brother because he wasn't walking in the faith. So you know what I did? I poured my Miller down the drain, and I've never had a drink again since that day. Now, that was my decision 30-some years ago. Never had a drink since. Why? Because love causes us to give up our rights to help someone else. Now remember this. Keep it in context. This is not really about drinking. It's an illustration. This is all about being transformed in Christ's likeness. That's what Paul's talking about. And he's saying, what could be more Christ-like than in love giving up your rights for the benefit of another person? Friends, if you want to describe Jesus, that's a description of Jesus. Giving up your rights for another person's benefit. Jesus gave up all his rights in heaven. It says he left heaven. The, the, the thing called the kenosis. He emptied himself of his rights of heaven and came to earth in the form of a man. Why? 
so that he could die for our sins and we could be saved. Jesus is our model we talked about in the very beginning. He says, therefore, be imitators of God. Be imitators of Jesus. And Christianity is all about love that compels us to sacrifice for others, i.e., the cross. That's what the cross is. Love compelling me to sacrifice for the good of another person. So since love is the highest Christian virtue, I chose to not drink anymore for the sake of other people. For my neighbors, my friends, my family, but first of all, it was for my biological brother. I chose to not drink anymore. He could never again justify his drinking because of my drink. He couldn't say, he couldn't say anymore, well, you had one so I can have ten. Now I'd say, I have none. How many do you want to have? He couldn't use me as an excuse anymore. Why? Because love is the highest of Christian virtues. So I choose to apply it by saying I choose to not drink anymore. Factor number three. My message to my kids, the message that I send to my kids and my grandkids. I don't have any grandkids yet, but I will someday. So my message that I send to my kids and my grandkids. We live in a culture where many people believe that it's impossible to not drink. Many people cannot believe that Suzanne has never had a drink in her life. I always tell her she's a sinner because she went to a retreat center recently and communion was with wine. I said, oh my goodness, you drank wine. You know, by the way, we use grape juice, but honestly in that setting, I would not mind if it was wine. Not drinking it for the sake of drinking it. It's a, it's a you know, it was in a, in a spiritual application. But people can't believe that she's never had a drink in her life. And so, because I think it's impossible, we as a couple, me as an individual and we as a couple, have chosen to not drink for another reason. Because we want to show our kids, our children, our sons and our daughter-in-laws and their brother and sisters, we want to show them that you can live a great life without alcohol. I want to show them. I'm not condemning anybody else. I'm just showing them that you can live a great life without having to have a can of beer in your hand. Now, understand this. Now, this has been our perspective. We have always taught our kids that the Bible teaches moderation in drinking. We've always taught them that. But that we have taught them that we have chosen to give up that right in order to love other people better. You know, we never said um, that, that um, drinking was sin. Never told our kids that ever. I don't think it is. We never said, and this is Christians have done this mistake forever, and it's ridiculous, it, pr- it makes you look foolish, that the wine in the Bible wasn't alcoholic. It was wine. It was alcoholic. And we never used those crazy excuses trying to say, explain away. No, we said, the Bible teaches moderation. We choose to give up our right for the sake of other people. Um, and I think about this and as far as an example, and I don't mean this, as I brought this up the other day with some people, I didn't realize it really affected them, so I don't want anybody to think I'm thinking of anybody, or I don't want you to feel condemned because you're not responsible for what you did yesterday. You're responsible in life for what you do today. I'm not saying you're not responsible for yesterday. I'm saying that I, I can't change yesterday, but I can only change from today forward. So I want you to think about, I always thought about how hard it would be to be a parent who drank in moderation but one or many of my children became alcoholics and had great issues with that. I'd always wonder what part I played in that process. So the message that I want to send to my kids is that I have a wonderful life. And I do. I've got a wonderful life. They know I have a wonderful life. We have a great life. And it's all been without drinking. In fact, I would say this, and I'm not saying this guessing. 
my life is infinitely better now that I don't drink. It is infinitely, I'm a way better dad. I'm a way better husband. I'm a, I have a way better, more enjoyable life now that I chose to, you know, for 30 years not to drink. Make sense? Well, remember, all I'm saying is, here's factors I've used in my life. Just evaluate them, see if they make sense. And then you decide what you want to do with that. You do whatever you want with it. Factor number four. And factor number four is going to be a whole sermon coming up in two weeks. The spirit-filled life is a much better life. That's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying you can't have it both ways. He's saying you can't be filled with wine and be filled with the spirit at the same time. And I have found that being filled with the Spirit is a much better life. I never punched somebody on purpose when I wasn't drunk. I've accidentally punched Suzanne a few times at goofing around, but I've never hauled off and punched my best friend on purpose in the mouth. Whap! Only did that when I was drunk. I live a much better life. I've never crashed a car being drunk um, when I'm not drinking. The Spirit-filled life of joy and peace and abiding, abiding presence of God is a much better life. True love, true joy, true peace are the results of a life that invites the Holy Spirit to fill it and to transform it. If you have to say in life because you're stressed out, if you say this one time, let it be an alarm to you. If you ever say, I need a drink, had a long day, whatever happens, and you just say, I need a drink. I'm telling you, let it be an alarm bell that's saying what you should say is, I need to spend time with God. Because that will solve your problem. The other one will just depress your problem and in the end make it worse. Because you don't need a drink. You need the abiding love and joy and peace that are results of the Holy Spirit in filling your life and transforming you. That's what you need. But the world offers a substitute that will numb you for a while so you don't feel that you'll never go towards what you really need. You stop short of the life of abiding presence of the Lord and you end up with just medicating yourself for another day and actually making your life worse. Jesus said that if we abide in Him, right there, if we abide in Him, His joy becomes our joy. We don't manufacture our own joy. It's not the joy that comes out of a can. It's His joy. He says becomes. He puts His joy in me. That's a description of the Spirit-filled life. Abiding with the Holy Spirit and allowing His goodness to penetrate throughout you. Now, I like the way Eugene Peterson translates these verses um, in, in Ephesians 5 because it captures the idea that I'm trying to say here. So Eugene Peterson translates Ephesians 5, 18 to 20 like this. And it just, it's, it's the point I'm trying to make. He says, don't drink too much wine. That cheapens your life. Drink the Spirit of God. Huge draughts of Him. Sing hymns instead of drinking songs. Sing songs from your heart to Christ. Sing praise over everything. Any excuse for a song to God the Father in the name of our Master Jesus Christ. Trading songs of praise for drinking songs. He said there's a transfer, there's a, there's a, you had to make a choice. Either choose the drinking songs or the songs of praise. Drinking in the Spirit instead of drinking in booze. Knowing your heavenly Father instead of knowing the inside of a bottle. Friends, let me tell you this. As a person who has walked it, it's a trade worth making. I've never regretted the trade I've made one time. I have never regretted making the choice to stop drinking. And I do know this. There would be many things that I would have regretted 
had I continued to drink. That's just the way it is. I would have regretted many things. So my question to you as I close today is this. Is it really worth it? That's a choice that each, each and every one of us needs to make. And let me say in closing, this isn't a salvation issue. This is a wisdom and a spiritual maturity issue. It's a development in Christ-likeness issue. Paul is saying, remember, Pastor Mark didn't write that text in the Scripture. Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. In context of a whole section of the Scripture, of this chapter, of this book, saying, put off this, put on that. It's a trade, I think, worth making. Would you stand with me this morning? We're just going to close in prayer, and then I am going to run. And so, if you want to pray, Pastor Chris is here, people will pray for you. Don't run away. If God's dealing with you, set some things in order before you go. I hate ever having to run. It's so rare that I have to do this. But listen, set some things in order. Don't just run off. Spend some time. People will pray with you. So, Father, I simply conclude by saying this. We are yours. And I simply ask that you would guide and direct us along the path of transformation that would help each and every one of us. Help us to grow in Christ's likeness every day and in every way. And Lord, on this topic that is so part of our culture, Lord, I don't think there's, everybody's going everybody's to agree, and that's okay. But help us to consider what is true and then apply it according to your will for our lives. So Lord, thank you for challenging us through your word. We love you, Jesus.